question this morning. Is there a way that you can go out in public and avoid being seen? Is there a way you can go out in public and avoid being seen? Uh, maybe you've seen as you're going through the checkout line in a grocery store, the tabloid magazines where it's got celebrities and somebody has snapped a picture of a celebrity out in public, not trying to be seen. What's going on? Usually the celebrity has sunglasses on their face, some kind of hooded sweat pulled over them. You know, now it's really easy to not be seen because everybody's wearing masks during a pandemic. But it's true, isn't it? When you go out in public, you are seen. There's no way to get around that. That's just a fact of life. Let me ask you something, though. Should it matter more to you if you call yourself a Christian that you're seen in public than it matters to somebody who's not a Christian? In other words, does being a Christian up the stakes at all for you knowing that you are seen every time you are in public? Does that matter to you? I was intrigued this week of that idea as I was reading a book on U.S. history by Wilfred McClay. He wrote a book called Land of Hope. And he was talking about some of the early colonists. You know U.S. history. Jamestown, 1607. Plymouth, 1620. Well, in the year 1630, when the Massachusetts Bay Colony was getting started, there was a group of Puritans who came in a boat they were led by a wealthy lawyer named John Winthrop. And as they were getting near the shore, before they made landfall, John Winthrop preached a sermon to them. He wasn't a pastor, but he, he preached a sermon. You know what he said in that sermon? Picture the scene for a second, though. Picture yourself on a boat, choppy water. You're about to be in new land, like look out to that side of the stage for a second. It wouldn't be nicely mown grass like that, cut grass, but maybe it's a place like that that you've never walked around in. They're all looking out at the shore. Here's what he says to them. This is a bold, audacious statement. John Winthrop preaches to these Puritans on a boat, and he says this. He said, we must live together, covenant together, share in each other's burdens and sorrows, we must consider that we shall be as a city upon a hill. The eyes of all people are upon us. Really? The eyes of all people are upon you? These were pilgrims coming to a sparsely inhabited land. And they really believed that the eyes of all people were upon them, that they were a city on a hill. Keep in mind, they had just crossed countless miles of ocean away from everything that was familiar to them. That vast and turbulent ocean cut them off from the civilized world as they knew it. They were stranded there by their own choice, looking out on what would have seemed kind of like an untamed wilderness. And yet they say, we are a city on a hill, all eyes are upon us. If they can say that, 
from their Christian worldview? What about you and I? When we leave this place, when we drive out of this parking lot and we see the skyline of Austin continuing to grow and homes and cars and busyness all around us, how much more can we say the eyes of all are really upon us? That's what we're going to talk about today. That, that language being a city on a hill wasn't some poetic thing that John Winthrop came up with in the year 1630. It's something far older than that. That's language from Matthew chapter 5, the Sermon on the Mount. So I want to invite you to turn to Matthew chapter 5 right now. If you have a copy of God's Word on your phone or a, a Bible with you, go to Matthew chapter 5. <clears throat> and as you're turning there, I just want to remind you, the Sermon on the Mount, we started earlier this year talking about it, uh, but then we had this thing called a pandemic that we're still in. And so we tabled that, and Samuel and I both stopped working through books of the Bible when we paused and we taught on the attributes of God. Uh, we've come to a place in the year where we're resuming these studies of where we were. So we were in Matthew 5, Sermon on the Mount. And it's worth noting that, again, this is the most commented upon portion in all of Scripture. Throughout all of Christian history, if you go back and you look at all the commentaries that have been written, all the sermons that have been preached in the early church, in the Middle Ages, in the Reformation, the modern period, if you could scan through them all, the Sermon on the Mount has been most commented upon. It's a fascinating sermon, and we're just going to look at a little piece of it today. We're going to look at verses 13 through 16. So I want to invite you to look at that with me. Now, let's read Matthew 5, 13 through 16, and then we can spend some time unpacking it, seeing why it matters for our life. Matthew 5, 13. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. I pray that today we would understand why Jesus said that, understand the meaning of it, and how it should affect our lives. Before we do, just a brief note about this sermon in its entirety. Not the one I'm preaching, but the one Jesus preached on a hillside maybe as steep as this one. Remember in Matthew 5, Jesus, it says in verse 1, seeing the crowds, he went up on a high mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. Sitting was the normal posture of a teacher. And he sat down and he looked upon all those who had come to that hillside, that mountainside. So it's kind of like this moment, but it's in complete reversal. I'm not sitting, I'm standing. I'm not at the top of the hill looking at you. You're at the top of the hill looking down at me, which is fitting. Jesus is the perfect teacher. 
We can't try to be him in every little perfect way like that. We don't need to go find a mountain, get everybody to sit on the mountain, to grasp the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount, though, is all about God's kingdom. It's about the golden rule, the Lord's prayer, the Beatitudes, salt and light. You've heard these things before. But what is the Sermon on the Mount talking about when Jesus says that we are salt and we are light? Have you ever thought about that? I want you to do something. Hopefully this won't make you feel uncomfortable. I want you to look at somebody sitting next to you, in front of you, behind you, beside you. Here's what I want you to say to them, because this is going to fit with the two points of the sermon. I want you to say to them, hey, you're supposed to be salty. Hey, you're supposed to be bright. Go ahead and do that now. There we go. And if you're more culturally steeped than biblically steeped, when somebody says salty, you might think that word just means when somebody's irritated, you're being too salty. No, there's a different meaning that we're going to look at here. You may think if you're too culturally steeped and not biblically steeped enough that when somebody says, hey, be bright, they're just saying, hey, live out your story. Do what's true and right for you. Show your individualism. Be bright. That's not what Jesus is saying here either. But what you just said to somebody around you are the two main points of the sermon today. So if you're taking notes, it'll be really simple. If you're not taking notes, it'll be easy to remember. The two points of this sermon fit the two metaphors that Jesus gives us. In verse 13, Jesus says, you are the salt of the world. So our first point today is be salty. If you want to be even more texturally accurate, you can tighten up that point and say, stay salty. Because in verse 13, Jesus gives a metaphor of salt coupled with a warning. He talks about salt, but immediately after that, he warns everyone, hey, you might lose your taste. So we want to explain that. So it's not just be salty, it's stay salty. That's the first point. The second point of this sermon be bright, shine bright. That comes from the second metaphor of be light. Jesus says in verse 14, you are the light of the world. So with that in mind, those two categories, let's, let's begin to unpack what does Jesus mean here? Well, the context helps us. So often when someone is teaching the scriptures or reading at home, they can have the temptation to take what they're looking at and just hold it in isolation. We don't want to do that today. Did you notice, go ahead and glance with your eyes, did you notice what was just said in verses 10 and 11? We didn't read them out loud. Go ahead and glance with your eyes. Verses 10 and 11. It's at the end of the Beatitudes, and Jesus is telling his disciples all those who have gathered around, he said, you will be persecuted in this world. You will be reviled. You'll be persecuted. But you know what's amazing about remembering the context? If you remember that, if you can remember what the world is going to do to you, what a sweetness that now here Jesus turns the tables and he tells his disciples, 
here's what you're going to do to the world. So verses 10 and 11, what the world does to us as Christians. Verses 13 through 16, what, what we do to the world. This is fascinating. Let's look at that first metaphor of salt. We want to stay salty as Christians. Well, salt, you know what it means. If you go to the original language, do you want to know what the word salt means? In the original language. It means 100% word for word what the English word salt means. There's no point in going to the original language to look up that word salt. We all know what it means. In fact, Jesus intentionally picked the most common preserving agent, the most common seasoning flavoring agent in the world on purpose so that everyone, all walks of life, would know exactly what he's talking about. And it's no stretch of the imagination that salt was understood by everyone of, of what it is and what it does. We can even go to the scriptures to prove that. In the book of Judges, chapter 9, there was a wicked man named Abimelech, and he captured a city called Shechem. And he captured the city. He killed everyone in the city. And then he kept his wickedness going after he raised the city, not raised up, but R-A-Z-E-D. He raised the city. He crushed it. He destroyed the crops and fields. It says in Judges 9.45, and he sowed it with salt. He intentionally sowed the area with salt, making it an uninhabitable land so that crops could not be easily grown there again. In the Old Testament, that kind of verse shows us that even those who are wicked know how to take something that can be used for good, like salt, and use it for evil purposes. But we also see in the scriptures that in the Old Testament, folks knew what salt was. They knew how lasting and permanent it was because we read verses like 2 Chronicles 13.5, which says, Don't you know the Lord God, the God of Israel, has given the kingship of Israel to David? and his descendants forever by a covenant of salt? In the Old Testament, it was spoken of a covenant of salt in a few different places, in Leviticus and Numbers, Second Chronicles and Ezra. This little phrase, a covenant of salt, comes up. Salt your sacrifices. And that's getting at the idea of permanence, of preservation. It's a picture of covenant longevity and permanence. It's the same reason why when you go to the freezer aisle at Randall's or Trader Joe's or HEB or Fresh Market, wherever you go, Central Market, maybe your groceries just show up in your house because your parents bring them there for you. Have you ever noticed what happens to the, the food that's freezer food? Have you ever looked at the ingredient list on the back? How much salt is in a frozen pizza, for example? Why? Well, even with all of our modern technology and modern refrigeration, we as human beings have never gotten beyond the need for salt to be a preserving agent, especially for food. And the people in ancient times knew this, and you know this today. Sure, there's myths that go around. Maybe you've heard the myths that Roman soldiers were paid in salt. 
And that's how we get the Latin word for salary. You ever heard that myth? That's a myth that you don't want to waste your time on. Jesus is not talking about a salary here. Jesus is talking about salt. Yes, that thing you're thinking of right now, that table salt. If you think back, though, before it was so purified and pure, think back to how salt used to be extracted. It used to be gotten out of the ground. People used to work hard at making salt, even letting salt water evaporate. At this time, most people in this region got their salt near the Dead Sea region, and it could have impurities in it. But the meaning is not lost on anyone when Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth. What does he mean by that? Well, I like how one early church theologian said it. This is somebody speaking in the third century. Remember, we're in the year 2020. Somebody way back in the third century said this. Salt is useful for many purposes in human life. What need is there to speak about this? That was Origen, an early church father. Even in the second and third century, pastors didn't spend 20, 30 minutes trying to get people to understand what salt is. He said, what need is there to speak about this? Now is the proper time to say why Jesus' disciples were compared with salt. And I quote from the third century, salt preserves meats from decaying into stench and worms. It makes them edible for a longer period. They would not last through the time and be found useful without salt. So also Christ's disciples, standing in the way of the stench that comes from the sins of idolatry and fornication, support and hold together this whole earthly realm. Historic Christianity has always understood what it means for Christians to be salt of the earth. I want to ask you today, do you understand what that means? Do you understand what that means? It means that by implication, the world is decaying and dying. You might not see that if you left our parking lot today on this east side and you stopped at the hill and you looked at all the buildings that are being built in downtown Austin. You might be tempted to think the world is not decaying. The world is rising up. It's prospering. Look at the technology we have. Look at the modern advances we have. But if you have eyes to look out upon your city and not look at the physical buildings that are being built, but look at the morality that's being built or eroded, then suddenly when you put your eyes on the spiritual and moral state, you see the decay. We live in a world that's dark and is decaying. It's like a piece of meat that's going bad. There's a reason why cattle herders and cowboys, if they're going on a long trip, they don't just put a slab of beef in their bag and start going. They take time with that slab of meat to rub it with salt and spices, let it dry out, put more salt on it. They pack it in. And then you have a nice beef jerky. There might even be some of you that know how to make beef jerky. You could ask Weston Reese. 
But everyone knows in every generation, whether you've lived in the past or today, salt preserves food. You have to have salt to prevent decay. And Jesus is saying, those who follow me are the salt of the earth. You prevent moral decay in the situations that God has placed you in. Do you believe that? But Jesus gives a warning. He says, if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? This is a challenge to us because just like salt in the ancient world could have impurities in it, Jesus is warning all those who are listening, stay salty. Beware that you don't lose your taste, that you become flavorless. Because there's no other preserving agent to put on the preservative agent. There's no flavoring agent to put on the salt. The salt is the flavoring agent. So when Jesus says, beware lest you be found to be without taste, he's saying that there can be those who think that they're following me just because they're around other clumps of salt, other Christians' followers, but they prove to be not genuine. Their life is devoted to impurities. They abandon the faith. So Jesus is, is in one sense warning us. Do you know how to make sure if you're staying salty, if you are the salt of the earth and you're not deceived, do you know how to test your life? Jesus is asking you right there to examine your life. And never get casual and slack with your role in the world. In one sense, Jesus is saying, kind of like what Martin Lloyd-Jones said. Here's a quote from Martin Lloyd-Jones. He says, we are to be unlike the world. Salt is essentially different from the medium in which it is placed. And in a sense, it exercises all its qualities by being different. As Christians, we're not only different, but we glory in that difference. Just like later in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 7, where Jesus says in Matthew 7, 24, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven. Not everyone who claims to be salt and who happens to be around others who are salty is in fact salty themselves. Jesus doesn't want us to be deceived. He wants us to know that we are distinct from the world. If you want an example of what it means to think you're salt, but then prove to be flavorless, and as Jesus says here, be no good except for anything to be trampled and thrown out, think no further than Judas Iscariot. He deteriorated into this sort of tasteless salt. Judas deteriorated. He didn't have a genuine love and heart for the Lord. He went from apostle to apostate. He became wretched and useless even to himself. I pray that happens to none of us. You might ask, can salt really lose its taste? I mean, salt, that ionic compound, NaCl, you know, pure salt, it doesn't lose its taste. And you want to get all scientific? I'm going to go with what Jesus says, not your science book. Jesus says, beware that your salt doesn't lose its taste. 
your science knowledge actually proves Jesus's point. If you are truly salt, you're not going to lose your taste. But the only way to know is to have taste that endures to the end to prove that you were genuinely salty. How are you doing at being the salt of the earth? I want to encourage you that if you want to be salty in your family and salty in your workplace, the way to do that is to live out the Beatitudes that Jesus just got done speaking about in Matthew chapter 1. Or you could go after this passage and start to live out the rest of this sermon. It's filled with applications of how to be salt. And I hope that you would be awakened this morning to realize being the salt of the earth is not merely something that mature Christians get to be. It's not something that you graduate to after being a Christian for a certain number of years. Jesus is calling all of his disciples this. You know, sometimes in our Christian lives and even in church settings, we can pride ourselves on what is my spiritual gift? How am I so unique compared to everyone else around me? Our society certainly celebrates individualism. Here, Jesus is saying it doesn't matter whether you are home or away, whether you're in your hometown or somewhere else, you are salt wherever you go upon the earth. It's not as if one culture and society, one ethnicity, one socioeconomic status of Christian is extra salty, but you, whatever category you're in, you're, you're less than. He's saying everyone who is a disciple, who's a citizen of my kingdom, is to affect the world by being salty. This should encourage you. Have you ever thought that, yeah, I'm sharing my faith, but nobody's coming to faith in Christ around me? Have you forgotten that beyond just seeing someone come to faith in Christ, you are doing great good around lostness if you are speaking truth and if you are living righteously? Because by your mere presence of doing those things, you are acting as a preservative to help hold back the decay. Think about your own family, those in your family who don't know the Lord. Your life is next to them by that kinship, by that relationship. And even if you only see them on holidays like Thanksgiving and Christmas, don't ever beat yourself up that, man, they didn't come to Christ this year. I'm wasting my time every Thanksgiving, every Christmas. Yes, work and hope and pray for them that they will come to faith in Christ. But don't forget here that Jesus is saying, keep speaking truth, keep being salty, keep living the right way, keep asking them questions, getting into their life, building that relationship, because even if they don't yet become a Christian, your act of being salt, preserving their decay, is doing great good in the world. We are the salt of the earth. So whenever you want to, you have my permission, text, email, or call a fellow member of this church and say, hey, were you salty this week? You weren't salty enough. Come on, get after it. We are to be the salt of the earth. The best way you can be salt 
is not to sit at home and brainstorm hundreds of ways how you can get out in the world and do some flashy, magnificent thing. The best way you can be salt is to be exactly like a piece of salt. You get near something that's decaying, i.e. someone who doesn't know the Lord, and you hold fast your moral convictions. You hold fast truth, and you don't compromise truth, and you don't hide when you have a chance to speak up. That actually gets to our second point, not hiding. We don't want to hide our light because not only are we to be salty, we're to shine bright. We're to be the light of the world. This is the second metaphor. This is point two. Look again at verse 14 and 16. Jesus says, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. I just want to pause here and say, these two metaphors, salt and light, are so simple, but they're profound. Here's why they're profound. They're profound because in every generation, every century, Christians have always asked this question. And here's the question. How are we to engage with the world? How are we supposed to be involved and deal and affect the world? Are Christians supposed to just accommodate the world or ignore the world? or retreat out of the world, or go after the world and fight the world and be harsh and be the loudest? What are we supposed to do as Christians as we sojourn in this world on our way to heaven? Well, the answer is we are to be salt and light. Can you picture how radical this would sound to these Jews, the first Jewish Christians hearing this? Think for a second. Why would it be radical to be called salt and light? Because Jesus is speaking to common, ordinary, everyday people. And because Jesus is speaking to them in a way that is upending and unraveling their preconceived notions that the kingdom of God comes by the sword. You remember how the disciples, whenever they would talk with Jesus, they would say, is it at this moment that you're going to restore the kingdom? Is it at this moment that you're going to take your throne, that you're going to pull out a sword and start taking out the Romans? Jesus is helping them see that God's kingdom is not coming by a sword until his second coming. Between our time now and when he comes again, the way we affect the world is to be salt and light. This would have been radical for the original hearers to hear because it was so ordinary, so plain, but it's so profound. Jesus calls them light. You are the light of the world. Have you ever been away from a city, away from a suburb, in a place where there's not many lights? Put up your hand if you have. Excellent. Everyone. That's all of you. And if you haven't already, at some point in your life, you probably will. 
Jesus knows that all of those hearing him in this moment on that mountainside, hillside that day, when he said, you are the light of the world, they would have known how unique that was. Because there wasn't modern electricity when this was written. Light was so valuable. Just a little bit of light would change the darkness of a landscape if a city was nearby. You know that, don't you? Those of you who raised your hand, isn't it much more sweet to look up at the night sky when it's a clear night and you're not near a city? But when you are in those moments, if somebody does light a fire or there's house lights on, they seem that much more bright because it's that much more dark. So just like Jesus implied that the world is decaying and he says, your salt, the rottenness of the world that's falling apart, it's morally deteriorating, your salt to preserve that, by implication when he says, you are the light of the world, can you see that Jesus is saying by implication, the world is dark. Any of the greatest philosophers, the greatest thinkers, the only knowledge they can give you is knowledge of creation, scientific things. They can't give you the light that Jesus is talking about here. Only Christians are this light in the world. Only Christians have the good news of the gospel. God is light, and in him is no darkness. 1 John 1.9 the sovereign King of kings and Lord of lords who dwells in unapproachable light, 1 Timothy 6.16. Jesus Christ is the true light, John 1.9. He is the radiance of the glory of God, Hebrews 1. So it makes sense then that his followers would be light. Those united to Christ, they shine. That's what Ephesians 5 tells us. It says, at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. Ephesians 5, 8, and 9. This is one of those master metaphors, really, of the entire Bible. In Romans 1, verse 21, do you remember how the scriptures describe the heart of a fallen person? It says, Although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking as their foolish hearts were darkened. Again, it's not the progress of the world, which many people would want you to believe, that's so stunning. It's the darkness of the world and the moral decay that is so stunning in the world. Humanity is not progressing. The lie that you will be told if you go somewhere outside the Bible is that humanity is making progress. We eat better than those in the past. We dress better. We think better. We have more goods, more technology. But whenever somebody ever says that, if a professor in your classes say that, if a family member says that to you, at Thanksgiving or Christmas or on FaceTime or a phone call during this pandemic, if you ever get in a conversation with somebody about them telling you how great people are and how the world's progressing, simply ask them, are we really making moral and spiritual progress? 
It's plain. The world is in darkness. And as John 3.19 tells us, this is the judgment, that light has come into the world, but men have loved the darkness. Isn't that true? That's the truth that sets the stage for the gospel. Because God created a beautiful world. He created a garden and he put man and woman there. And they had light and life and health and beauty and joy and gladness. They could love the Lord and serve him and worship him. But they chose to darken their own hearts by rebelling against him and doing that which he said don't do and ate of the fruit. And we have all done the same. We have all darkened our hearts by our sin. And because God is good, he will pour out wrath on darkness, on sin. But God doesn't just leave humanity in a state of darkness and decay. He sent that great light, the true light, Christ, that ultimate preservation agent, Jesus Christ, to come into the world and live perfectly, fulfilling all righteousness. And Jesus willingly, not as a, a victim, willingly went to the cross and was nailed to the cross to absorb the wrath of God so that all those who turn and trust in him and realize they will decay without his preservation. They will be in darkness without his light. All those who turn and trust and embrace him by faith like that, believing that after he died, he really rose again. All those who turn and trust like that then become salt, become light, and partner with Christ in making his gospel go forth. Do you see the privilege that God has given you this morning? I don't know what you're looking forward to the rest of today. I can't speak for all of you, but this is one of the most beautiful moments of the day. We are outside gathered with God's people. This is one of those safe moments, though, you know. Because in these moments, it feels just for a moment we escape the world and we're with other Christians. It's safe. We get to sing and hear truth, fellowship. But I want to remind you, there will come a time where this service will be over and you'll be going back to your homes, your workplaces, your families. So don't forget, the ministry is not just what happens here at church when a preacher is preaching or when somebody is leading us in song. Ministry is happening when you are in the sovereign places God has put you to be salt and light. Have you ever thought of yourself as a minister? You are. To the extent that you are salt and light, you minister to the world. I keep harping on the fact that if somebody doesn't come to Christ in your conversations, if you don't see conversions all around you, I don't know about you, for me growing up, that was kind of the only measure of if we were doing well in evangelism in the church I grew up in. Have your friends come to Christ yet? Have they come to Christ? This encourages Christians because to be salt and light is to have an effect on the world even before you see some of that fruit. 
trust that the Lord will use you to minister in this world. Let me close with a few applications of how you could be light. And then we'll close in song. Just a few applications. The first way to be light in the world, you ready for this? Make sure Christ is in you. Make sure you are genuinely a Christian. If you are a Christian, because Jesus is the true light, you are in Christ. He indwells you by his spirit. You can bear light in the world. And Jesus lived this way. Whether he was talking to the woman at the well, whether he was washing the disciples' feet and others and servants and others could see what he's doing, whether he was talking to the rich young ruler, whether he was having meals with tax collectors and sinners, Jesus lived as salt and light. I want to invite you to live the same way in a very practical way. I think one of the ways we can apply this verse is to realize that it is not our age or our experience that makes us salt and light. It's the fact that you are a genuine Christian. So those who are older in life, senior saints, do not believe the lie that's whispered to you by the enemy that your time to be salt and light was when you were young, when you had all these bounds of energy. That's a lie. Have you forgotten that people in your family look up to you? Have you forgotten that you carry great influence as salt and light? And vice versa, those who are young can be whispered and told a lie that, well, when I'm older, when I have extra discretionary income, when I've established myself, then I'll be salt and light. One of the ways you can apply this verse is to realize right now, you are called to be salt and light. It's also helpful for us to realize that to be salt and to be light goes hand in hand with the Great Commission. That's how the book of Matthew closes, making disciples. So this is not something extra on top of the Great Commission. This fits hand in glove with it. Jesus is, not Jesus is not asking you to do extra things by being salt and light. He's simply asking you to hold your moral convictions, to speak the truth, and to do deeds in love wherever you go with whoever you are. Another way to apply this is to stop and think for a moment. Wow, I seem to be the only Christian in my workplace. Why would God do that to me? He would do that to you because it only takes one bright light in a dark place to put light on the whole place. It only takes a little bit of salt put next to something that would decay to affect it. Now, the Lord's giving us a lot of illustrations of something be affected by something else. The wind can just knock things down at will. What are you going to do to the world? I think that's a great illustration of What's going to happen to the world if you take the mentality of being salt and light? The world can't stand up next to that. The decay of the world cannot overpower you as a Christian. The darkness of the world cannot overpower you as a Christian. So I want to speak gently for a second to anyone who feels like they are a timid Christian. 
I'm not asking you to be arrogant and so bold that you have no reverence and respect to others. I'm not saying that. But what I am saying is, Christians, disciples of Christ, disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ, when you go into your workplace or family settings, do you have a boldness to know that it doesn't matter how much decay is next to you? You are the salt. It's not going to hurt you. The body they may kill, but God's truth abideth still. When you go into a workplace that's so dark, take confidence. You are the light in that dark place. Yes, the world may do a lot to us, but we have to remember what we do to the world. Jesus is emboldening his followers in the Sermon on the Mount here. Jesus says, in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to the Father in heaven. This is the way Christians have been moving throughout the world for centuries. So I think it'd be fitting to close with this idea. Anytime you fear what the world is going to do to you, stop. And in prayer and by faith, think more of what you will do to the world as you maintain your faith in Christ. The Holy Spirit makes us salty and bright. Are you salty? Are you staying salty? Are you shining bright? Doesn't it all make sense now how we are in the world, but not of it?